Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right, before we begin, I just, I, 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 gotta, I gotta understand this. I, I can't move forward without knowing. What the hell is like the glowing ball of light that Trump and the king of Saudi Arabia were laying their hands on? Love. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so first I mean, of all... Was it a scene from Macbeth, as Bill Crystal seems to think? <laughs> what is this? It's what? terrifying. It's strange. It's also like Studio 54, Riyadh. I kind of love it. I don't know. I don't know. So I was trying to imagine like, okay, you're the advanced team and you go out to Riyadh and you walk into this global countering terrorism center and you see it's a huge room filled with men at computers. And Mm -hmm. you think to yourself, how are we going to make a dramatic visual image for the launching of the center? I know a glowing orb. Like, how did they come up with that? I don't know. It's so strange. And I couldn't tell like if it... Were they laying hands on it to light up the room or were like, was the king just tired and needed to rest? And then everyone thought we're supposed to put our hands on it. No, no. It's the source of his power. It's what keeps him young. Oh, <laughs> my. Here, here's what I want to know about the, the glowing orb, which is because it, I, among other things, seemed to me like a weird failure of the interagency process again, right? <laughs> that, that you had somebody in the advance team said, oh, and then we'll do the part with the glowing orb. Oh, and, yeah, sure. You know, okay, great. And everybody's like, yeah, okay, glowing orb it is. Yeah, yeah, and someone check on that. Nobody said, you're going to do what? <laughs> you're going to make the president of the United States no, but- look like Sauron. <laughs> It's a, it's a it was beautiful image. Yes. It's, a, it's a beautiful image of leaders acting together, laying hands, okay. healing the lay world. Hands, you lay hands on a baby. <laughs> you lay hands on, you know, the in a hospital visiting the sick. The you, you lay know, hands on the world. You're you're gonna drive the evil out of the world so that it to, glows like like a diamond and a would be dictator. <laughs> Get together (laughs) and put their hands on a glowing orb, you know. No, that's not creepy at all. Well, it is, it is true. The, you know, there, Trump met with the Pope today, and I saw the pictures, and there was no orb. orb. They, yeah, they don't. They don't let that orb into the Vatican. Pont- pontiff, <laughs> don't do orbs. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous, and I can't get enough of it. Maybe the orb contains the souls of all those condemned by Donald Trump because maybe, they, the the orb is Rex Tillerson's Horcrux. Maybe it was. Maybe it was actually Trump's object lesson. <laughs> You'll have to get to the end of this week's episode to see Trump's whether Trump's uh, uh, orb is one of the object lessons. <laughs> if, we, if, but... if we can ever stop talking about the orb. <laughs> 
Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the glowing orb of peace edition. Doesn't that sound nice? Wouldn't you like a glowing orb of peace? Don't we all want, I want a glowing one. orb of peace? I want mine to be like a disco ball. I can he- I can see the Coke ad now with oh, the yeah. singing children, the oh, glowing yeah. orb of peace. That's what that like that uh, Caitlyn Jenner's whatever Kardashian person should have handed out in that awful commercial. Ah, uh, totally. By the way, log rolling for your wife on 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 uh, a podcast is really bad form, I know. But I just want to say that of there were a lot of bad jokes on Twitter about the orb. Great and, jokes and, on Twitter. And but Tammy had had an awesome set of tweets just tweeting pictures of orbs with no comments. All See, glowing. They were all glowing. But this orbs. is what I love about Twitter is that like in the moment that was excellent and thank you. I laughed a lot. But like it's so context dependent. So if someone goes back and looks through your Twitter feed like 2 weeks from now, like some other crisis will have happened and they'll have literally no idea. It, it was what awesome. Doing. It was awesome. Just lots of orbs. Uh, I'm Shane Harris from the Wall Street Journal. <clears throat> I'm here in the Jungle Studio with my friends Ben Wittis, Tamara Kaufman, or Wittis, and <laughs> Quinta Jurassic joining us this week. Hey, everybody. Hey. hey. Hello. Uh, it has been an orb-filled week of so much news. I don't even know where to begin. We might need two podcasts, but we're gonna we're gonna pack it in like a concentrated, glowing packet of, of news, <laughs> like a a, re- a spherical, a packet? spherical thing. Oh, I can't wow. use the word orb anymore. <laughs> This week on the podcast, Donald Trump tours the Middle East and insists peace is within reach. Robert Mueller is tapped as the new special counsel overseeing the Trump-Russia probe. And one very special podcast panelist spills his guts to the New York Times. He might be here to tell us all about it. Hmm. Wonder um, who that could be. Wonder I, who that could be. I mean, I didn't know Quinta had given an interview to the New York Times. <laughs> I, I have many <laughs> secrets. Why is the law firm intern talking to the New York Times? Not, hey, no, 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 I'm not, not an you, like another law firm. Oh, intern. okay. Yeah, yeah, you're not an intern. She runs lawfare. No, Quinta's a this goddess. Shane, Shane's it's down not, not really me. an intern. <laughs> Um, let's start with uh, Donald Trump's Middle East tour. Uh, as we speak tonight, today, this afternoon on Wednesday, he is in. Is he in Rome? And he's bound for where is he going next? Germany, right? He, uh, Brussels. Brussels. Sorry, he's going to Brussels. Right. Um, so, so many questions about this tour. I mean, I think number one, people were expecting weird meltdowns, and you know, he's off the Twitter account and he's out of the time zone and all that. It seems like, in general, the trip kind of hung together pretty well, save for strange optics of glowing things and not being able to remember whether it was Lamist or Islamic terrorism in his speech in Saudi Arabia. And that little tiny Melania hand slap. Oh, there were two of them. Two of them. Um, So, Tamara, I want to start with you. I mean, what are your... Give me some first impressions of... The trip and its significance. I mean, there's A, there was the managing expectations part, but B, you know, this is the American president making a major tour through the Middle East. This was his first foreign visit, and it's to Saudi Arabia. Don't think we would have seen Hillary Clinton going there first if she were elected. Um, but what are your sort of first impressions of this tour and, and what we're gleaning from it about Trump's approach to foreign policy or any significant takeaways that you thought there were? Well, and particularly the Trump administration's emerging approach to counterterrorism, which, as we've discussed before, kind of has to be their top foreign policy priority, certain from the certainly from the perspective of American public expectations. So the kind of uh, advance brief from the White House was that this was going to be a trip all about unifying the great monotheistic faiths in the fight against extremism. And what was striking to me is um, that 
Trump addressed himself quite resolutely in Riyadh, in Jerusalem, and in Bethlehem, not to the adherents of these faiths, not to Muslims and Christians and Jews, but to leaders of governments as representatives of their faiths. And it was kind of a, a jarring um, approach. So he gave a speech about uh uh, it was billed as a speech about Islam. It was really a speech about terrorism and how evil it is to a group of several dozen uh, leaders of Muslim majority countries uh, in Saudi Arabia um, with the sort of patronage of King Salman. Uh, and um, the speech really was about how governments around the region, around the world, working with the United States, buying weapons from the United States, uh, which he, he, he actually called the announcement of a Saudi purchase of $110 billion in American weapons, blessed news in this speech. Wow, so there was this, be. Yeah, blessed be. So Can I get an amen? <laughs> There was a sort of weird merging of religious language about God, peace, good, and evil with this this very kind of hard-nosed government-to-government set of interactions. Mm. Um, and I, I just found it a really jarring contrast. But what was also really interesting is that, you know, okay, there's a very military-heavy center to this counterterrorism approach and to the counterterrorism coalition that was um, on display in Riyadh. Uh, but what was uh, striking also about Trump's speech is that he really doesn't have a theory of the case about terrorism. Mm. Unlike previous American presidents, whether it was George W. Bush basically arguing that the freedom deficit in the Middle East created demand for extremist um, views and extremist uh, violence, or Barack Obama saying that, you know, government to government relationships aren't enough. And if we build up people to people ties and offer people more opportunities, then we'll have less terrorism. Uh, Trump doesn't have a theory of the case. Terrorists are just evil. Uh, and um, I think it's it's interesting. Or that losers, he, as he likes to call them now. Or losers. Um, and so that doesn't suggest anything specific about what's the appropriate strategy to defeat them you you kill them and you drive them out and it's just that simple um and it may be that 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 is enough for the purposes of this trip for the purposes of creating an appearance of comedy and partnership between the united states and all these governments in the region but it's definitely not enough to get us to a defeat of isis do you do you guys think that one of the things that I took away from this was <clears throat> there's just sort of a simplistic approach in in what he said about counterterrorism. Um, there was a similarly simplistic approach in what he said about solving the Middle East peace process in the Arab Palestinian, the Israeli Palestinian conflict. In most of his speeches, I got the impression that this was the first time Donald Trump was really contemplating these things, and he arrived at very basic first order kinds of conclusions that one who had never contemplated these things probably would. I mean, is that selling him too short or? I, I don't think you're wrong that he hasn't thought about these issues deeply, but I actually found this sort of declaratory approach. In other words, don't ask me about the details. Don't ask me hmm. for a strategy. I'm just going to stay. Peace is good. Violence is evil. And we have to drive it out. Um, that's very similar to his approach on healthcare, which is, you know, Obamacare sucks. No. We're going to pass something great 
don't ask me about the details. If you ask me, I'll tell you it'll be fine. Yeah. And we saw where that got. I mean, it was a disaster, right? I mean, it's it's can you can can you conduct foreign policy on sort of the surface level like this? I mean, is that do we assume that that is how he's going to approach all of these problems? I mean, look, I think the idea that he's going to get below the surface on any issue other than his own, you know, clinical psychology is uh fanciful. And so I think the most that you can reasonably hope for with Trump is that he uh, he will stay at the surface and appoint good people to get below the surface. And that's uh, something that, you know, you've seen happen in certain areas. Uh, you know, we're not spending a lot of time worrying about the conduct of the U.S. military, for example, right? And that's, you know, Trump says smash ISIS, bomb the shit out of them. And he, he appoints somebody to smash ISIS and bomb the shit out of them and seems to be kind of leaving the day-to-day -day functioning of, of, of the operations to General Mattis. And so it's not... Sec Secretary Mattis. Uh, sorry. Uh, to the civilian uh, secretary, former General James Mattis, um, you know, I, I think I think there are limits to that, particularly when you're dealing with diplomacy of a sort that involves the presidential level, like you know, going to countries and negotiating individually with their leaders. That's something that uh, you know you can send a Secretary of State to do. But if you do it yourself, it's hard to then stay at that surface level. Uh, and that's why we have things like orbs, right? To, you know, to keep things at a level in which, you know, you can be theatrical and mm -hmm. you don't actually have to face any, any difficult choices. Well, um, and, and every leader that you interact with at that superficial level can take away from it what they want to take away from it. You know, as long as you don't get into the details, you never reach areas of disagreement. So everybody's happy. Right. And and look, and, and I think, you know, one thing we saw this week that was not related to the trip specifically was the leak of the uh, uh, call, the transcript of the call with uh, Rodrigo Duterte. And there, I think, is a really interesting example of what happens when the president actually gets into the weeds and the details of policy, which is that he calls up a or receives a call from I'm not sure which it was a foreign leader and the first thing he does is congratulates him on his on his campaign of of targeted uh, uh, killings extrajudicial killings and you know that then reveals to him that the U S has two nuclear submarines in the area right surprise and and you know so and I think what he did with the Russians before he left you know revealing a whole lot of really sensitive information is also an example of what happens when he tries to get in the so, you know, my, my view is better that he should operate at the level of, uh, you know, big, big themes, let's smash terrorists and, you know, we can just do a deal on the Middle East and then kind of leave all the details to others. I, I think that's actually the, the least bad option. Yeah. Although, I mean, in terms of literal gestures, like putting your hand on a sinister glowing orb that might work. But I mean, there's an element in which the words that the president says have carry a very specific meaning. And in the case of Trump, when he's reading something that someone else has written for him, sometimes a meaning that he doesn't appear to understand. So an example of this in his address in Riyadh, he 
apparently was supposed to refer to Islamist terror as a way of walking back his insistence Uh on saying radical Islamic terror. Um, But then he slipped and said Islamic terror and then later in the sentence goes back and says Islamist. And it's I'm not sure that that was a mistake. I think that might have been the messy compromise arrived at by warring White House staff who have been fighting over that term for literally months. And so in the end, the text said one thing and some of his advisors said something else. And so he decided to say both. Well, but he he goes he says he says one and then he goes back to the other yeah. right. So I but that that's an instance in which I think that that's exactly my point that the the Trump can do the grand gestures all he wants, but there are moments where the messy process sort of peeks through. I mean, and I think I was anxious about the speech in Riyadh because it was initially stated that Stephen Miller was going to be the person writing it, Stephen Miller, who has very, very harsh views of Islam. And the speech as it was prepared or as it was delivered seemed much more to be something that was written by someone like H.R. McMaster, right? So in the speech, you can see the process. We can say, you know, the process worked. The speech wasn't fire and brimstone railing against Islam. But there's also these moments where the sort of confusion bubbles up to the surface. Yeah, can I just say that there's a there's a real element here of uh, the ongoing war between malevolence and incompetence, right? So one axis of the conversation is whether the speech is written by the malevolent people, i.e. the Stephen Millers, who are, you know, going to, you know, write nasty stuff, right? Or whether they're going to be uh, written by people like General McMaster, who are you know fundamentally decent and 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 you know don't have completely crazy ideas about what the U.S. relationship with Islam should be. The second question is whether Trump can read the speech right, without exactly. actually screwing it up, so exactly. as to convey the wrong meaning when he's trying to read the right meaning. And the thing and is, those, those he, might, he might not understand problems. the distinction exactly. between those two meanings. I, I actually or, think or that... Or really care. Right. I actually think that to a certain extent, the um, this, the potential rhetorical screw-ups are less significant um, than, than the details that come after the speech. So... You know, this speech in Riyadh had very, very harsh words, for example, for Iran. It had incredibly fulsome praise for Saudi Arabia's domestic reform program, for Emirati efforts at counterterrorism, for Bahrain. Um, And it's, I think, no accident that in the immediate wake of this visit, we saw, number one, a vicious crackdown by the Bahraini monarchy on demonstrators (laughs) Uh, and on a leading Shia cleric, Bahraini cleric. And we saw a U.S. military raid in Yemen um, that got the, get, that uh, reportedly got U.S. forces into a firefight with a very powerful tribe, um, which is now very, very angry. <laughs> and so these are the details that matter, not ultimately, I think, the words that come out of the president's mouth, because I think that foreign leaders increasingly simply don't rely on or put any faith in the words that come out of the president's mouth, whether they're intentional or unintentional, scripted or unscripted. What matters is what the United States is doing. And people are using these um, 
this broad, superficial, and yet very ambitious rhetoric as cover to do what they want to do. And then we have to live with the consequences. All right, let's move on to our second topic. <clears throat> Big week in Trump land, Russia land. Big, well, bigger than usual. Not as big as the week before. Does this scandal have a name for me? We're going to get to that. Yeah, is this like Russia Gate? Is it Russia no, Lago? I can't call it a gate. I think Russia. I like Russia Lago. Russia Lago is good. Russia Lago is feeling very nice. So it's been a big seven days in Russia Lago. On um, Lafer, we call it La Ferus. Right. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, because you, you, you elitists, you all speak French. <laughs> uh, so let's start with. Uh, let's try to get through all of this. But let's start with you know, Bob Mueller, uh, former FBI director, former. Uh, U.S. Attorney, uh, former head of the criminal division, former head of the criminal division of justice, is appointed by none other than Rod Rosenstein as the special counsel overseeing the Trump Russia probe. Um, ben, just very briefly, what is a special counsel, and why is it different than a special prosecutor? And what is the scope of his authorities, and who does he report to? Okay, so it is not different from a special prosecutor. It's just another name for uh, uh, the regulatory special prosecutor. Um, what it is different from is an independent counsel, which uh, – so the independent counsel law was passed in the aftermath of Watergate and it gave rise to a number of very high-profile investigations including uh, Lawrence Walsh's investigation mm -hmm. of, of the Iran-Contra affair and most famously Ken Starr's investigation of all things Bill Clinton. Um, the independent counsel law was, which had a sunset provision attached to it, was allowed by both parties to lapse in, uh, I believe 2000 or maybe 2001, uh, in what was a giant bipartisan sigh of relief, um, because it had, uh, really revealed that once you name independent councils, you can't really do anything about them and they kind of run riot over the political system. Um, and so in the aftermath of the independent council laws lapse, the Justice Department promulgated a, a set of regulations or actually revived because they were already there from, from earlier days that allowed the appointment of what are called special councils, which are essentially uh, regulatory special prosecutors, similar in character to uh, Archibald Cox and Leon Jaworski, who, you know, investigated the Watergate, uh, uh, scandal. And, you know, look, the bottom line about, about regulatory special prosecutors is that they are less independent than independent counsels, but, and they can be removed, um, and they can be given direct orders in theory, at least, by, uh, the Attorney General, which in this case, is the acting attorney general, the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, because because Sessions is recused. Um, but they function in practical terms very independently, and particularly when they are people like Mueller, who uh, are have you know enormous independent stature, much greater stature, by the way, than Rod Rosenstein does. And so you know the threat of Mueller's resignation is a, you know, is a catastrophic threat from, from Rosenstein's point of view. Uh, and it's not necessarily a catastrophic threat from Mueller's point of view, mm -hmm. right? And that, that's where the power comes from in that relationship. And so I think as a functional matter, Mueller will be able to do what he wants as, as special prosecutor here. Do you guys think that following on the, and we talked about this in a previous episode, Rosenstein's sort of, I think, why, you know, 
widely criticized uh, role in the firing of Jim Comey. Does this help restore some public credibility to the Russia probe and make it seem like it's actually now truly going to be independent? Or, I mean, yet Bob Mueller is a figure, as, as you know, as Ben is saying, you know, if, you know enormous stature. He's threatened to resign once over the warrantless wiretapping program. It's not like he has anything to prove. Uh, I mean, does it seem meaningful? Well, so in terms of public perception, it's hard to imagine any better figure to a point than Robert Mueller. But I I think that Rosenstein's move here, what it actually did was two things that are very helpful, both to the Trump administration and to the Republican Party more broadly. This crisis had spiraled into such a a frenzy of news breaks and, you know, kind of unending news coverage. Um, it was almost like a missing Malaysian airliner. There was mm. so much news coverage mm. that um, that appointing Mueller really, number one, kind of l- pushed the investigation back into a quieter track, let the FBI do its job, let Mueller do his job. And it took pressure off of congressional Republicans who were under increasing uh, public, you know, pressure from Democrats and progressive activists to appoint a select committee or an independent commission or something like that. And so the pressure is off of them. The focus is on an investigation that has to happen behind closed doors and everybody gets a little break. Yeah. It does feel like it It gives people some room. So let's talk about some of the things that he may be investigating and maybe even things that have come up in the past week. Um, Let's start with the Washington Post revelation that uh, in keeping with the theme of Donald Trump asking senior members of government to tamp down this Russia story. Uh, Won't anyone give me a horse? My kingdom for a horse, right? Uh, <laughs> Trump reportedly uh, got in touch with Dan Coats, the director of national intelligence, and Mike Rogers, the national security agency director, who he had reportedly once considered to be DNI. Uh, fun side note. And wanting them to go out and bat down the idea that there was collusion. Um, so, Quinta, obstruction of justice? Something less than. <laughs> well, first first off, we, we should also note that not only did Trump reportedly contact Coates and Rogers to ask them to tell the press that there was no collusion, White House officials, so this goes beyond Trump, spoke to people at NSA and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence in what seems to have been the wording of the post story is a little unclear and I don't have it in front of me, but essentially asking if they could push Comey to drop the investigation into Michael Flynn. Uh, so all There's of this... a full court press, you might say. <laughs> so look, I mean, it looks pretty bad. On Lawfare, we've run a couple of pieces by Bob Bauer, who's former White House counsel for Barack Obama, basically suggesting that well, any of these specific incidents might not in themselves constitute obstruction of justice because there's a pretty high statutory bar there. You have to prove specific intent. Um, the pattern of behavior from the White House and specifically from Donald Trump looks very, very bad, shall we say, to the point that it is reasonable to start asking questions about whether this pattern points to behavior that would constitute obstruction of justice. It it also just seems remarkably clueless, this sort of repeated, you know, endeavor. And the idea that it's not going to get out. Right. (laughs) So it it really makes you wonder, what were they thinking? I mean, look, I think it is assuming the journalism is good um, and that the facts that are coming out are 
a reasonable facsimile of the truth. And, uh, you know, knowing a lot of the reporters in question and certainly knowing all of the media organizations in question and knowing that the stories are not being rebutted, I think it is a reasonable assumption that a lot of these stories are essentially accurate in character. Uh, it is very hard not to see a significantly obstructive pattern in the sequence of events that begins with uh, with Trump's uh, um, meeting with Comey in which he asks for a loyalty oath and doesn't get it uh, and ends with his removal. And then the next day with Trump boasting to the Russians that he'd uh, removed this nut job and now there was a lot less pressure about Russia and then boasts to says quite candidly to Lester Holt that he'd had Russia on his mind when he did it. Um, now, I, 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 you know, I say that tentatively because these are news stories. Uh, they're not people under oath. They're not. They, they they don't contain the details. The details matter a huge amount. But my operating assumption is that the details are going to make this worse, not better. Right. Right. Well, there's also, I mean, on Tammy's point about whether or not there's even an understanding of what it is that they're doing. So the the Post story says, this is a quote, current and former officials said that Trump either lacks an understanding of the FBI's role as an independent law enforcement agency or does not care about maintaining such boundaries, which we'll talk about this in a bit, but it's Ben made a similar point earlier this week. So there really is an element of this where it seems like, you know, the sort of like greasing the palms, backroom deal, like talking to the mob bus, like, oh, you know, I, I hope, I hope you can, you can understand why yeah, we don't want he, you to pursue that, this. Like, he was implying Wait, there, some kind of threat that they would take seriously. But there's, there's just no, even like malevolence or incompetence. Like, I can certainly accept that it was, it's malevolent to some degree or another, but. It's certainly incompetent in that they really don't seem to understand the mechanics of the agencies that no. the White House is, well, has now walked into. And as Jack Goldsmith has pointed out on Twitter numerous times, like, what's the role of the White House counsel here? Okay, maybe the president doesn't quite understand, but he does have someone on his staff whose job it is to advise him on this stuff. And that's, that's where the incompetence seems to be clearest. Um, let's just touch briefly on John Brennan, former CIA director Brennan's testimony before the House Intelligence Committee, because, you know, to Ben's point, details matter and the testimonies matter. Um, I don't think we learned anything particularly new. No, uh, we, about, we learned some new stuff. Well, I was going to say, hold on. But I think what was, what was amazing was to hear John Brennan, the former director of the CIA, saying that in the summer, uh, you know, before anybody really knew much about possible ties between Trump associates and the Russians, he was seeing evidence of Russian interference in the election and believed that and saw interactions by Trump associates who he did not name with Russia and alerted the FBI to that fact. I mean, it wasn't so much a bombshell, but to hear him saying it and say, yes, this happened, yes, we took it seriously, and it was significant enough that we gave it to the FBI, which opened an investigation, you know, I thought was pretty, pretty significant. Yeah, I mean, and Shane, you can check me on this, but I don't think... 
When I was covering the hearing for Lover, I don't think I I hadn't certainly hadn't realized that CIA had played such an important role. In, I think they're in instigating right. the FBI yeah, the investigation and, we knew and that putting they, together yeah. the interagency group that's studying right. yeah. the issue. Yeah, to be kind of in the almost not quite the canary in the coal mine, but to be among the first responders, so to speak, to to alert to this. And I think that you know John Brennan, who's a pretty placid guy for the most part, um, in terms of his volume and his what is expressiveness for Brennan this was John Brennan off the leash and speaking his mind and you could really see it in the tension of many of the exchanges where I thought it was very interesting where Trey Gowdy and his repeated attempts to try and get John Brennan to say there was no collusion opened the door for John Brennan to say oh but there were many contacts between Trump associates and Russian government officials and I told the FBI about it yeah I I think Brennan, so first of all, the background condition that listeners need to understand about this is something about John Brennan, which is that uh, he is uh, somebody who says rather less than more when he's able to. Uh, he is not he's not a particularly communicative individual in public settings, although he's um, uh, you know he's certainly very articulate and thoughtful um uh and for and he's also very careful with his words um and you know for him to say the list of things that he said yesterday uh is a uh th- that was deliberate um and i think it was his way of signaling do not underestimate the collusion elements of this investigation. Can I just flag, though, I I think there is a little bit of a vulnerability, not in terms of the facts or the substantive investigation, but in terms of the public narrative around the issue. Brennan was so fierce um, in his remarks and also what his characterization of President Trump's appearance before the CIA uh, right after his inauguration, which is something Brennan spoke out on publicly at the time as well, but reiterated yesterday. I think that there's a little bit of a vulnerability created there that partisans are going to use to say, you know, Brennan is just part of this Obama intelligence community conspiracy mm-hmm. against President Trump and his efforts to overturn the old elites. Um, and I think, to, you know, without meaning to, I'm sure, Brennan may have played into that a little bit yesterday. Although what's what's interesting is that that's not actually the angle that the White House took, right? The the no, White but their allies are out there taking it today for sure. But but so yesterday, maybe the media cycle has moved on because yesterday what was going around is that people that the White House said like, look, Brennan's testified that yeah. there's no evidence of collusion, and there are all these people on you know right wing Twitter saying, look, there's no evidence of collusion, which sort of like. Trey Gowdy didn't even need to try to push Brennan to say that because they just went ahead and lied Twitter about it anyway. It so, I mean, maybe the fact that his it testimony so clearly too, yeah. didn't say that yeah. they're sort of taking a new tack. But I thought it was interesting that their first instinct wasn't to smear them, to smear him. It was just to flat out lie about what yeah. he said. I think uh, I think the narrative today is he's the ultimate Obama holdover, which is quite a statement about a guy who devoted his entire life to the CIA. Right. By the way. Yeah, just on that point, Brennan is a Bush administration holdover and a uh, uh, Clinton administration holdover before that and a Bush one and Reagan administration. Well, let's remember his his W. Bush era uh, credentials cost him the CIA director position at the beginning of Obama's first term. Um, 
All right, let's move on to our last topic. Rational security was not the only thing being recorded with Ben in the Jungle Studio in recent days. Ben, have you been cheating on rational ben, security? have you been cheating on us with the New York Times? I'm afraid I have. <laughs> <laughs> so for those who don't know, uh, Ben Wittes, I think, became the first, uh, do we call you a confidant of Jim Comey, a friend? Someone in the Comey orbit, a, Corby, a Comey, Comey satellite, orbit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I only to do. give an on-the-record account of his conversations with the former FBI director about the president. Yeah, I mean, I've used I, what I've said is we're friends. Um, I'm not, uh, you know, to the extent that there is a Comey inner circle. I'm not part of. But you're friends that. with benefits, so it's cool. <laughs> Hang <laughs> um, on a minute. <laughs> wait, wait. <laughs> My wife is here. Um, <laughs> you know, um, what, 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 let's start it by saying what, what made you decide to not, not only talk <clears throat> to Michael Schmidt at the New York Times, who, for context, remember, is the reporter who broke the stories that Jim Comey had contemporaneous memos of his rather, uh, awkward, <laughs> troubling interactions as he saw them with President Trump, particularly around the question of asking Trump, asking Flynn to, um, Comey to back off the Flynn investigation. Why did you decide it was time to go on the record with a reporter about this? Well, so look, I've been anxious about this for some time. I mean, you know, Jim and I talk on a uh, reasonably regular basis. And uh, I've been aware for some time that uh, he was under, you know, <laughs> feeling a constant need to defend the integrity of the FBI and protect it from political uh, interference from a group of people in the White House that he really did not regard as honorable people. And I've been concerned about it, um, you know, since the beginning, you know, since Trump's election, honestly, but, but, but more particularly since, since the uh, inauguration. And I've not been at liberty to talk about it. And when Jim was fired, and particularly when the news came out about the loyalty oath, I felt that that really put in very sharp relief a series of incidents that Jim had told me about uh in a very different light than I had understood them. So things and, he told you that at the time didn't have this significant cast. Well, so they, they look, they stuck in my mind. They were upsetting. They were of concern. They were the things that made me kind of generically aware that he really did feel the need to protect the agency and felt that it required active protection. But they weren't uh, – I didn't think of them in the context of an obstructive pattern of behavior. And if you look at the revelations of the last two weeks, starting with the removal of, you know, Jim himself, and then the threat to him that was tweeted shortly thereafter, the lies that were uh, told uh, about you know, why he was removed and then the truth that was admitted about why he was removed. And then the sequence of stories that were released about interactions between him and the president. And I, I knew some additional interactions that were upsetting, which is the ones that I, you know, talked to Mike Schmidt about. Um, I think the more of that that came out, the more I just felt that, you know, 
wow, I actually know something here that is of central concern to the public, which was how Jim was feeling about this whole thing in real time. And, and that these interactions, many of which I did not know about at the time, uh, I did know about how he was thinking about it. And, um, and I knew that he was in a kind of single-minded way in the way, in the only way that you can be single-minded when your you know your day job is running a federal agency um he was really thinking about how to protect the agency and that was something that he had to spend a lot of energy and time doing and you know i just decided that that needed to come out you know, um, one, one of the things that i have been wondering for for months now and I think that this interview helped answer that, and you're helping answer right now, was that if Comey, and I think we all presumed at the time, had great misgivings about Trump and didn't believe these were honorable people, why not simply quit? And I mean, it both, A, because out of his own, for his own ethical reasons, uh, but also that it might send a signal that he didn't have confidence. And it sounds like what you're saying is that he really felt a need institutionally to protect this agency, hence his hence his decision to document what he clearly thought was an encroachment upon its independence. Yeah, I I, I mean I I do think I know the answer to that question, though we've never discussed it specifically. I think the answer to it is he took it as a mission personally and one that he felt very deeply invested in as a matter of honor to ensure that the Bureau was able to do its work. And he was, uh, you know, his view was uh, that he was fireable at will by the president, but as long as he was not fired, he was going to make sure that all of the pressure on the Bureau was on one person and not diffused throughout the institution of the Bureau, and he was going to absorb all of it. You know, it, it strikes me that the FBI director is perhaps uniquely situated in the executive branch in that regard. In this ongoing conversation we've had uh, over many episodes of the podcast about the perils or dilemmas of serving in a Trump administration, you can contrast um, – Comey's approach and what ultimately happened to him with the conversation, the, the debate really that's gone on over the last couple of weeks about H.R. McMaster uh, and the role that he's played. And you can say that, you know, it's it might be quite frequent that a senior official serving in an administration like this would say to themselves, well, I need to stay here in order to protect the integrity of the agency under me, the people under me, the work that they're trying to do, the mission, et cetera, to protect them from whatever uh, might come from the White House. Um, but it's actually quite difficult for most senior officials who are managing most federal agencies to hold that line. The FBI director, in a way, you know, has statutory and normative um, history uh, and authority to 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 hold on to when he's engaged in that effort in a way that a cabinet secretary doesn't even, um, and certainly a national security advisor working directly for the president doesn't have the ability to hold that line. So I think that's a really really important point. And so one advantage that Jim has here had. And of course, it's ultimately an overcomable advantage and it was ultimately overcome. You know, the president decides to remove him, he's gone. 
But one advantage that he had over somebody like H.R. McMaster is that the, the FBI is actually a vertically integrated paramilitary organization. And Ooh, that sounds scary. It should. <laughs> you know, in the FBI I was building, just starting to like them. In the FBI building, there are there is ex- there is one distinction between people that is a distinction of status, and that is: Are you gun carrying or are you not gun carrying? You know, do you have a shield or do you not have a shield? These are really, you know, and the the director of the bureau matters an enormous amount in in a way that is uh, a little bit less true than agencies that you know kind of function on autopilot and um and that means that the director of the FBI in a way that is uh you know probably less true of some other agencies does get to does get to try to insulate the entire department from from but look, I, I think, you know, you're seeing something similar happen with H.R. McMaster, who's clearly made a decision. He will accept some measure of intense personal humiliation in public in order to protect the interagency process. And you're clearly seeing something similar from, from General Mattis, or sorry, Secretary Mattis, who's, you know, made a decision that, uh, you know, he, uh, it is really important for the Defense Department to function normally, and it is less important for him to be untainted by Donald Trump. And I, I think that's a, you know, that's an extremely hard line to hold over time. And and it's also just a really, really slippery slope, or rather, it is very soft perhaps quicksand on which to try and make a stand. And on which point you should all read Quinta's excellent <laughs> essay on exactly this posted Monday Indeed. morning. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I did. Ben is correct. I did make this point um, with a shout out to David Lubon, who wrote a similar essay on just security, I think, shortly after the election, that the the point being that you can say... I'm going to withstand this humiliation to protect my people, to protect the integrity of the organization, to prevent something really, really bad from happening. But the problem is that there's an element of path dependency and that it can become very difficult from the inside to know when you've crossed the line or when you're approaching the line. Um and so the the problem is that it's a very personal decision, you know, am I willing to put myself through this humiliation to protect this organization and these people from Donald Trump in many cases, but it's also a personal judgment of when has this gone too far. Um and I think what we've seen certainly in the case of the behavior of Rod Rosenstein although he's sort of tried to redeem himself a little and I think has done the nation a service in appointing Bob Mueller it can be really hard to tell. Um, and McMaster's sort of song and dance defending Trump's disclosure of Israeli intelligence to the Russians is another example of that. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Who wants to go first? Tammy, your object's right okay. in front of us. Here, so. <laughs> it's right in front of us. It's extremely colorful. So um, I'm delighted to welcome back to Washington on behalf of the Rational Security Podcast. Uh, a faithful listener, I think one of our earliest listeners, uh, Adham Sahlul, who just got back from spending quite a bit of time in Turkey working 
on behalf of Syrians with the Syrian American Medical Society. And he brought to the podcast because he knows that we enjoy a tipple now and then. And we have a few bottles of scotch here in the jungle studio. He he brought us a, a little Turkish ornament for our scotch bottles. It is uh a, a sort of, I don't know what you would call it, it's a like bottle a, cozy? It's, it's like a muumu. It's like a muumu for, for a, a scotch bottle in the shape of the, uh, the dress of the Ottoman sultans. Oh, wow, yeah. So... It's I a heavy around. drinking <laughs> Ottoman. <laughs> yes. Hey, I I wouldn't necessarily rule that out, but uh, but they sure dress. did know how to dress. If any of you have ever visited Topkapi Palace or even seen some of the exhibits that have come through the U.S. of these incredibly elaborate hand embroidered silk um, gowns that the sultans wore, so we have our very own little sultan's gown for, if I could get <laughs> for like the one, talisker. Like Fifty times bigger. I'd like to wear it around the house. Yeah. Totally. Can you well, just see that? Well, it is and, great. And I, you know, Erdogan is trying them all on now. I think we're, I think we should get clothes for all the Scotch bottles. That, you know, we now have the talisker has has the this. Uh, and the, the other bottles are jealous. Turkish. And the other bottles are jealous. So if, if you have ideas for for uh, wardrobe for our Scotch bottles, our Abelor, uh is 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 very interested. The Lafroy would is like the a Lafroy. dress. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for real. Uh, Quinta, what's your object? So my object is a four foot by four foot sinkhole that reportedly oh. opened up directly in front of Mar-a-Lago earlier this week. it's a message from someone yeah so what this reminded me of is you know like in Macbeth after they murder King Duncan and nature like revolts against them and it's like dark all the time and the horses start eating each other and like a bigger bird is eaten by a smaller bird I don't know I looked it up I can't remember it's you know nature's revolting against this unnatural act so I don't know guys I think this might be the beginning of the end. I just want to point out on this point that, you know, earlier this week, I tweeted that Comey's arrival uh, at the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, was likely to be, and I tweeted the uh, uh, entry of the statue in Don Giovanni in uh, Act 2 of Don Giovanni, where Don Giovanni, the statue shows up and then uh, bodily drags Don Giovanni down to hell. And of course, that is usually staged by a sinkhole opening up in the stage and Don Giovanni sinking into the stage. And so somebody tweeted that story from the Palm Beach Post as proof of my Don Giovanni theory. Hmm. Life is imitating art. Uh, ben, what's your object? So this week, uh, as some of the listeners may know, I uh, spent a little bit of time trolling all of Twitter. And this was actually an accident. I didn't really mean to do it. Um, but uh, when I knew that I, twice this week, I knew that certain stories that I had was aware were being reported and were about to break. Uh, so in advance of their uh, breaking, I tweeted tick, 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 just as a way I thought of letting people know that, uh, you know, something wicked this way comes. And uh, rather to my surprise, I uh, people responded by, you know, panicking uh and i gained 30,000 twitter followers uh, 30,000 30, yeah i think i i started oh my God. with around 35,000 and now what? i have around 65,000 i could be off by a little bit but I'm i gained try a, this. A, a lot that's of like over 10,000 followers ben. per he tick has enough um, followers yeah the more i the, i don't think anyone's ever gained more twitter followers by tweeting the word tick 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 um 
Uh, you do and, have sixty three point one thousand followers. Yeah, um, none of them <laughs> earned. I want to. Uh, um, so I thought I needed better production values on on my tick tick ticks and the booms that come associated with uh, the release of these stories. So fortunately. Um, a cannon showed up at, in my house. It just uh, showed up. You had nothing to do well, with it. Well, I had ordered it a while ago. It's a miniature cannon. And uh, this morning, I took it out in the yard and I fired as it. As boys will do. As teenage boys will do. <laughs> I did it with my, my one of my teenage boys. And we went out in the ba- in the front yard. And during rush hour, I might add, we fired a cannon, a miniature. It's small, but it's pretty powerful. At a uh, at a bo- moving car at a ca- at a can of Dr. Brown's soda, which we had shaken in advance, uh, and <laughs> <Rough> fact, <laughs> yeah, and that's, so that's because that's how you normally drink. We're putting right. the whole video up on uh, uh, on the show page, and I do urge you to watch it because it's very satisfying. But I've also broken it up into small pieces, so now. When I do tick, tick, ticks in the future, I will post the video of the fuse being lit and, and burning down. And when I do, uh, the booms, uh, I will, will post the video of the cannon recoiling and, uh, the very satisfying destruction of that, uh, bottle of Dr. Brown's, uh, so, diet. So when Trump cherry. finally gets impeached, can you do a video of like the whole War of eighteen twelve overture <laughs> I, with I, the dun, cannon? Dun, 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 I think <laughs> I think the, I think the next time this cannon gets fired, it will be in the salute of the return of the presidency. And, and, you know, I have a presidential uh, seal T-shirt that I have put away uh, uh, f- until the next time I can wear it with pride in 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 the presidency of the United States. And I think with the day I put that on, the cannon will salute the return of the presidential seal T-shirt. Countdown to the cannon. Um, All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our shows and our archive on our website. You can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter at RATL Security. Whenever you download the podcast from iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcatcher, please leave us a five canon review and tell Ben how much you love his canon. Well, or just the podcast. Would it be a five cannon just, review or five cannon balls? Five, five cannon balls, balls right? or five cannons, or five like containers of gunpowder? I think like those, like maybe those star emoji that are like yeah, the exploding yeah. stars. Do that, yeah. do that. Uh, our show is produced and edited by Jen Howell. Our audio engineer and panelist this week is Quenta Jurassic. Our music is performed by Donald Trump and the Magical Mystery Orb Tour. <laughs> It's yeah, the magical mystery. It really mystery was arm. something out of Sgt. Pepper. It really was. No, it totally was. That's exactly it. That's it. And nobody explained at all mm-hmm. what was happening. I, I just want to say, uh, you know, before we sign off, that uh, we need to do a shout out to the folks at Pod Save America because, you know, we've been making fun of advertisers that we don't have. And that's kind of easy because we don't have them. Yeah. But they make fun of advertisers that they do have. have. Yeah. And I just want to tip my hat to that, that, you know. When you're a star, you can do that. You can do anything. (laughs) They let you get away with it. I just think, you know, making fun of people who are actually paying you, uh, that's. I make fun of Ben all the time. <laughs> so like, you know, Ticket Genius or whatever it is, uh, Blue Apron, yeah. MeUndies. No, they, they, they go to town. Sunbox, 
Sponsor they, us. I will. I will troll the shit out of you. They go to. <laughs> they go to town on Blue Apron all the time, and it's 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 a thing of beauty. So so Send here's hats off. We will off. tell you how bad it is. Uh, our music is, of course, performed by Sophia Yan. Who, if if you sponsor, if so, if you if, let Sophia Yan read the ads, it'll be beautiful. I, well, I can't say what she's gonna do. I mean, she could go crazy, or be, or be very nice. We're not really sure. Depends on sure. depends on if you're nice to her. Mm-hmm. If you're nice to her, just be nice. Yeah, you don't want to be, be nice. mean to Sophia. Don't be mean to Sophia. On behalf of my friends Tamar Kaufman, Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Quinta Jurassic, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Kaboom. 